the Classic Comics Forum Podcast presents issue number 13, Black Hawk by Mark Evanier, part two. Welcome back to the Classic Comics Forum podcast. As always, I'm your host, Scott Harris. And in this episode, I'll once again be joined by Prince Hal as we continue our discussion of the classic DC war comic, Blackhawk. Last episode, in the first part of our three-part discussion, Prince Hal and I talked about the history of Blackhawk from its creation in 1941 at Quality Comics, through its acquisition in the 1950s by DC, its cancellation in the 1960s by DC, the short-lived 1975 revival of the series, and the strange sequence of events that led to the series being once again revived in 1982. In this episode, Prince Hal and I will discuss the first half of the revived Blackhawk series by writer Mark Evanier, and artist Dan Spiegel, beginning with issue 251 and running through issue 259. Before we get to that, though, we do want to touch on one point from our overview of Blackhawk's history from the last episode. One of our loyal listeners, MDG, wrote in to ask why we hadn't spoken more about the influential and iconic Blackhawk artist Reed Crandall, who defined the look of the series. Prince Hal, why don't you tell us a little bit about Reed Crandall? All I can tell you off the top of my head is, you know, he was the original Blackhawk artist. He's really good. He's a draftsman. He's sort of a Wally Wood type. And um, I can remember actually reading him in the old Catholic uh, school comic book. Um, what was it called? Treasure Tr- Chest. Yes. And he, he used to draw for them. I want to say he did some of that anti-communism strip that they ran for about a year. This godless communism. Yeah, it sounds like he was channeling his Blackhawk experience. I guess it? so. Yeah, yeah. We will be discussing Reed Crandall briefly in the next episode, but for now, let's jump right into it, what you've all been waiting for, Black Hawk by Mark Evanier and Dan Spiegel, starting with issue 251. So this first issue, the plot's actually not that important. It has to do with, uh, there's, there's a town... I think it's in the Netherlands that is basically it's under Nazi occupation and the Nazis have this like they have this fake vote that they're they're making all the towns do to to try and legitimize themselves. And so the the town is scheduled to vote on whether or not to endorse the Nazi rule. And the leader of the town is basically convinced all the townspeople to vote for the Nazis. The Blackhawks show up to try and give them a little backbone and some shenanigans ensue. And by the end of the issue, the Nazis have shown their true colors and the, the people decide to vote against the Nazis, even though it probably means their own deaths. Right. And it means the destruction of the art collection that one of them wants to preserve. Yeah, exactly. It turns out that the, the leader was trying to preserve all these artworks, and, and so he was sort of kowtowing to the Nazis, but then they ended up destroying all the artwork anyway. But there's... Besides the plot, there's a lot more important stuff here. I mean, it basically just serves as an introduction to all the characters, to to new generation. And in a way, we'll talk about this a little bit later, they're kind of new characters as well. Actually, let's just talk about it right now. Sure. The continuity for Blackhawk is really screwy. 
there's the, the quality issues and then the DC issues, and then there's the issues in the 1970s. Characters have been given multiple names, multiple origin stories that you can't really reconcile one from the other. So he makes the decision to take elements from all of these for the new version, but this is not actually building on previous continuity. This is like a hard reboot. And right. this these versions of the characters are on Earth One. They're the only they're the first and only versions of the Blackhawk characters that have ever appeared on Earth One. So it's the main DC universe, but this is the forties before any superheroes exist in Earth One. Which is why, you know, they don't have Superman or whatever, because that's Earth Two at during the forties. Right. And that all the previous versions of Blackhawk were either on Earth Two or on Earth X. And he is not going to bother figuring out which stories were in which universes. But the important part is we have these new versions of the characters that are basically starting from scratch, even though they're they're building on all of the the previous stories Mm -hmm. in an abstract way. Right. And it made perfect sense, if you ask me. That was that was perfect. And I think somebody in a letters page actually was the one who suggested it. And the veneer said, yeah, yeah, let's do it. Earth one it is. Because then the slate, then you don't know if, if these guys are going to survive. And it allowed him to play, you know, create a whole different set of events if he wanted, which he did. Yeah, I think it was a great decision, too. Um, the series is also begins in 1940. So in terms of what's going on in the world at the time, it's still a year and a half before America's involved. And we're going to see this come up a couple times where there are basically some American war profiteers and Nazi sympathizers who show up from time to time. The Americans end up not coming off very well in this series, to be honest. We also get the origin of Black Hawk and the Black Hawk squadron in this issue. It's a little unclear from from this issue whether Black Hawk is Polish or Polish-American. It doesn't matter. He's in Poland and his family's killed. So he takes up this sort of one-man resistance against them. He is a fighter pilot, so he gets a plane and he paints it black so that he can do these night missions without being seen. And this sort of urban legend about him grows mm-hmm. where the locals call him the Black Hawk. He later teams up with uh, Stanislaw, who is another fighter pilot, and as time goes on, they add the rest of the team. So the team, there's seven of them, there's Black Hawk himself, and later on we find out that his first name is Bart. Um, this is apparently something that he was occasionally called Bart in earlier versions of the series. They don't say his last name, I don't think, anywhere uh, in this run, although in previous versions, his name was Bart Hawk, which is... Right. I think, like, I think the first time I remember seeing that was in those uh, Giordano issues, 242 and 43. It's not, qu- it's not quite uh, Blackagar Boltagon, but it's pretty close. <laughs> you know, uh, he also picks up an antagonist early on. It's uh, Von Tept, the German. Yes, Whose rank changes? I assume he's uh, he's promoted frequently because he winds up being one, at one point he's a field marshal, which uh, was quite a step up. But uh, and he he's the killer of of, of uh, Blackhawk's family. So this this is uh, he's the uh, Joe Chill of of Blackhawk's story. Yes. Then we get introduced to the other characters, and and Evanier spends a little bit of time, pretty deftly, giving us just a real quick look at their different character quirks i don't want to say the characters are one note because they're one of the great things about the series is that they're not mm-hmm. um and he explores their their character each of them individually he gets into their character pretty deep on most of them but they do sort of have like thumbnail like one sentence 
descriptors, yeah. that, which is kind of what you get here in the first issue. Um, like the savage crowd, you know. Each one has something that stands out about him. Yeah. For Stanislaw, the only, he's basically the second in command, and his big thing, established right here in the first issue, is that he feels inadequate. He's living in Blackhawk's shadow, so he looks up to Blackhawk, but he also resents him. And this is going to be a kind of the only real character note for Stan. It's but it's going to be developed a lot. We're going to be it's a major theme with the character throughout the entire series. Yeah, it just to me it just went on forever. So the other people on the team, there's uh Hendrickson who is a World War 1 veteran, so he's much older than the rest of the characters. And his thing is basically like he he's very experienced, and so he's always giving his opinion and trying to tell them, you should listen to me because I know what I'm talking about. And mm-hmm. everyone kind of tunes him out because he's just a rambling old man, and, you know, it, it does get a little annoying with him all the time saying, you know, if you listen to me. There's Andre, who's sort of a stereotypical a French lover boy. He's like, an, he's like an adventurer type, and his thing is that he takes too many risks and gets himself and the team into trouble because he's not really taking stuff seriously. And of all the characters, I feel like he actually got the least payoff. Well, he does get a payoff, but I didn't. it didn't land for me. We'll talk about that in a little while. Yeah, I think I'm, think I'm with you on that. There's also Chuck, who's a Texan. And Chuck, his niche actually takes a little while to really come to the forefront. Um, but it's basically that he is kind of an asshole. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, he is always ragging on everybody and complaining about stuff. It does come back to bite him later on in a way that almost gets everybody killed. Mm-hmm. But the thing, you know, the thing that I did appreciate is that even though he is a dick, he he's not wrong most of the time. Like his the way yeah. he delivers things is is really kind of harsh. And in case I didn't mention it, he is from Texas. But but he's not wrong with his observations. So he's interesting. Then there's um, Olaf, who's a big dumb Swede, except for it turns out he's not really that dumb. He's not book smart, but he's very wise. And even though he's the biggest and strongest, he's also the most agile because he used to be a circus acrobat. Which he's constantly reminding the Nazis that he's uh, catapulting over. Yes. expect me to be so agile. (laughs) There's a couple funny places where that comes up. There's one whole backup story where he disguise himself as a circus clown and then finally maybe the most important member of the team in terms of the plot uh that and the development of like the whole arc of the series is chop chop who Mm. is a chinese martial artist and at the beginning of the series he he's just known as chop chop and unlike the rest of the team where they wear these matching black leather flight suits he's got this sort of uh old-fashioned turn of the 20th century Chinese gown must have been what was considered traditional Chinese garb back in the forties. Yeah. And, uh, he's going to quickly become a center of controversy for the book first in the letter column, but then it's going to spill into the stories. And, uh, for me, it's the most interesting part of this year. Mm-hmm. It takes a little while to get there. I would agree. So that, that's basically the first issue. It's mostly set up again. There is a story, about the uh, the town that's voting, but it's kind of secondary. It's not. It, it's a fine story, but um, it's kind of like any story, you know, would be fine in this situation as long as he gets the point across. Issue two fifty two though is where the series really kind of starts from a plot perspective because a lot of really important characters and concepts get introduced here in two fifty two. The most important is Blackhawk's 
sort of I don't want to say arch enemy because that's um, uh, Von Tepp, I think. Von, yeah. yeah, so that's Von Tepp, but Von Tepp doesn't show up for a while, and he's kind of he's a field marshal now, so he doesn't handle these things personally. Yeah. It's actually a Nazi agent by the name of Domino who becomes a thorn in Blackhawk's side, but also becomes sort of an intriguing romantic interest as well. Um, Evan Neer said that he wanted to sort of counter the unrelenting testosterone of the series by introducing a female character, but he did not want to use Lady Blackhawk. I guess he thought it'd be more interesting to have a female antagonist to right. face off against Blackhawk. So Lady Blackhawk in the old ones, I think she even became, uh, I don't know, Lady Killer Shark or something like that. And, uh, you know, she went bad for a while. And I think they probably recognized that that added something to the to the stories and so he you know he probably saw that and said yeah let's make her the antagonist basically we get a little bit of her backstory here in 252 not much although it's expanded on a couple times later without really adding any detail so i'm not quite sure why they gave us the longer version of her origin later since you pretty much get all the same information here but basically her fiance is in the german army he gets killed she goes into this horrible depression about his death and she's recruited by the nazi equivalent of granny goodness to join the female furies um and be trained as this nazi super agent and uh, as part of this training they basically slap all of the human emotion out of her and turn her into this relentless killing machine but in this issue, she has two opportunities to kill Blackhawk, and she doesn't, claiming that it's because of her orders, but we find out that she actually had orders to kill him, but something about him awakened her latent humanity and caused her to sort of start questioning her orders. I yeah. found her to be a really interesting character. I like this sort of um, moral ambiguity where you have someone who's not an inherently bad person. She's been trained to be evil and she's sort of subconsciously fighting against it while at the same time kicking everybody's ass. Yeah. My only problem with her was, it seemed to me, and this this seemed to me something that was at the root of some of the uh, problems with the, with the, the book in general. He was, Ebenezer is just, it's, it's as if he's moving things. It's like he's trying to get into fourth gear without getting through first, second, and third. I would have liked to have seen that grow a little bit more slowly. You know, it was one kiss, and I think they were in some analog to Monaco or, or somewhere like that. You know, it was, a, it was a neutral state where they had lots of casinos. <laughs> and, you know, one kiss is almost all it takes for us. Cinderella to realize that oh you know maybe maybe I'm really not all that evil and maybe I shouldn't really kill this guy and I just wish it had you know you could see it coming and that's fine you know it's part and parcel of this kind of story but I wish he had taken his time a little bit with it and strung it out strung it out more that that would be my criticism of that yeah I agree it's interesting because he does do that later on with some of the other stories yes like in particular at well, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but I, I mean, you were talking about Chop Chop. And, and with that one, that definitely developed. I think I think it was an example of something where he got the idea, you know, after a few issues and said, oh, this we could really develop. And then and, and it grew more naturally, put it that way. That whole Yeah. Plot. And to your point about sort of jumping into fourth gear without sort of earning it, mm. Domino is only one aspect of this story. Because in issue 252, he also introduces the classic Blackhawk. Yeah. I don't even know what to call it. Thing, the war yes. wheel, yeah. which is a gigantic metal wheel that just rolls over everything and crushes it. Right, right. And, uh, you know, in the old days, that thing would <laughs> reappear every so often. I think that 
shtick was that it became um, part of their, uh, you know, like Batman's uh, Batcave where he had all his trophies, say it's some hall of trophies or something like that on Blackhawk Island, <laughs> the war wheel there and the flying tank. And, all, and of course, you know, uh, it was one of those things, it's unwieldy, uh, this gigantic wheel in so many ways. But I think he was, again, this is Evanier, and I think it, it's great. He wanted to show a little bit of a regard for the past. And he said, what the hell can I do with this war wheel thing? You know, you didn't need to explain gimmicks like that in 1944, but in 1982, you say, okay, I want to bring it back for the fun of it, but let me give it a little bit of legitimacy. So, but I think, I think you're right. I think too much in, in one issue. Another aspect of this that ties into the war wheel is he introduces another long running character besides Domino, which is Professor Merson. Mm. Now, Professor Merson is an American weapons designer who is selling himself out to the highest bidder, which in this case is Nazi Germany. So we get this sort of um, message about capitalism, which is actually right. actually going to come up a few times. And, and, and it's not unrelated to actual history of the time. I mean, Nazi Germany was, um, you know, a client of places like the Ford Motor Company and uh, various other American uh, corporations. Germany was building up its war machine. That was just fine for business. So I, I'm sure that's what he's, you know, uh, counting on us uh, remembering. One one good thing that it, the introduction of Professor Merson does is that it provides an explanation for not just the war wheel, but all sorts of crazy nonsense that's going to come later on. Because basically, Professor Merson can use his science things to science up a bunch of crazy nonsense that we didn't have in our actual World War II, but which makes sense in the context of an Earth-1 World yes, War II. Yes, perfect sense. So 252, it, I liked all the elements of it, but it did feel kind of overstuffed, which meant that the pacing was a little bit off, like he was really rushing through stuff. Yeah. 253, though, for me, is like the first really great issue of the series. This is a spotlight issue on Hendrickson. Basically, we find out it's looking at the fact that everyone kind of dismisses Hendrickson, his advice. He's just sort of an old man. And he, over the first couple issues, we've seen him a few times talking about his wife. The rest of the team is called into Allied headquarters and they're like, you got to get rid of Hendrickson because he's going crazy. All these letters he was writing to his wife, she's actually been dead for a year. And they're like, oh. Um, meanwhile, they're they're taking all these missions, and Hendrickson does seem to be acting weird because every time they take out an enemy airplane, he runs over and starts siphoning off their gas. Right. And they're like, "What? What the hell are you doing?" It turns out that he has this pretty clever thing where they don't know where the enemy secret airbase is, and he extrapolates how far the enemy planes have flown from when they took off by how much gas they have in their tank. And then he uh, triangulates on this map and he's able to pinpoint where the enemy base must be. And then he flies there and basically blows it up. And it's a great gimmick, I think, too. I mean, it was, that was a nice twist, if you want to call it that, a revelation in the plot. It reveals why he's doing that. Yeah. There's also a really good idea that I don't think quite came off as well as it could have, where Hendrickson's story is being paralleled with that of a, a Nazi pilot. Right. And at the end of the issue, Hendrickson kills the Nazi pilot, and it was kind of like, it turns out that they have very similar backstories, it's just they happen to be on opposite sides of the war. I, I really like that idea. I've seen that before in other media. 
I feel mm-hmm. like it didn't quite get enough play in this issue. Like I almost wanted the story to be five pages longer so they could develop yeah. that aspect. Yeah, I agree with you. That um, the iconic scene on which this, not that he consciously based it on, but the, the one that always comes to my mind is from the uh, novel, uh, All Quiet on the Western Front. And the German soldier encounters a French soldier in a, in a foxhole in no man's land, strikes out at him, um, wounds him severely with his bayonet. And then they're forced to stay there for the better part of a full day. And he's watching the other guy die slowly. He can't do anything to help him. And the other guy can't do anything to save himself. And he starts to go through the guy's wallet after he dies and realizes who he was. And it's, it's, it's poignant to uh, a great degree. And you're right. He, this could have been mined for, for a lot more emotion than it was. And, um, I don't know. It's a it's a little muddled, you know. It's like a, a great idea that just didn't quite pan out at the end. Yeah, the end. I almost felt like he had two really good stories mm-hmm. um, that didn't quite fit together. I feel like they could have fit together. Yeah, it was almost like let's because both of them were good, and uh, and I thought yeah, this. I, I I don't know. I wonder if Evanier thought this thing was only going to have a run of like four or five issues, and it was going to be pulled out, and he just wanted to you know be as clever and as creative as he could with it in as short a period of time as possible. Just a, a stab in the dark. I don't know. He just, he was brimming with ideas. He was a Blackhawks. So, uh, he loved the Blackhawks when he was a comics reader. So maybe he was just, you know, spilling it all out there. But I, I again, I thought it was, uh, and the other, the other bit I didn't like in this one, because I liked the idea of Hendrickson writing to his wife, even though she had been dead for a year and all that. But, and, this is the same attitude they, that the other pilots displayed towards Stan. I mean, they were just dumping on this guy constantly. And, and it just seemed out of place, even though it was only the third issue. I mean, this is supposed to be this elite core of, you know, uh, all for one and one for all guys. But then they sounded like, you know, mean girls wearing flight jackets. And, and I just wish it could have been done in a subtler way, put it that way. Yeah, it's interesting because this actually continues through most of the series. Oh, yeah. They don't really seem like they're friends or teammates until, we're going to talk about this at length later on, until after Chop Chop leaves and the replacement guy comes in. And once they have someone that's not part of the group, the rest of them seem to come together and actually like each other and be teammates. Yeah. But it's not until there's an outsider that they stop being complete a-holes to each other all the time. Exactly. Uh, but having said that, I, I really like this issue. I really liked Hendrickson in this issue. I thought there was a lot of really good character work with Hendrickson specifically. It was interesting that he's like the first one of the characters to get a spotlight. You would yeah. expect Blackhawk himself to be right. get the spotlight, but no, it's it's Hendrickson that gets the first real character spotlight. Yeah, I agree, and it was it's clear right away that Evanier wants to sh- shine a different spotlight on war than would have been the case in the military comics version of Blackhawks back in the 40s, where it was, you know, Daring Do and everybody united in this patriotic effort. But here he was definitely looking at uh, at the human cost of, of war. In the sense, how does, it, how does it hit you when you're fighting day after day or whether you, when you lose friends and family and so forth? So in issue 254, um, we get an expanded origin of Domino. Again, it doesn't really add much. But mm. it's longer. We, we get a little more development with her uh, where she's starting to sort of question her superiors. I actually don't have anything else really to say about the main story. But the, the beginning of this issue, they start doing this backup feature where it's like journal entries from individual members of the team that are having these adventures. Yeah, that, was, that was a feature back in the 60s that they would do um, fairly regularly. 
detached service diary. And it always began with this uh, panel up top with a, a book spread open like a journal and, and Black Hawk telling us that, well, Chuck was in town for the weekend and here's what he went through. So it would spotlight one of them. I, I really like that. I haven't, I'm not yep. actually familiar with that from the early ones because I haven't read any of the older Blackhawks, but yeah. um, I, I liked it. Uh, I think it was a good way to get the spotlight on the individual characters because when you've got seven guys on the team, a lot of times you don't have room for much character development or you can only focus on one at a time. Exactly. I did feel like losing those six pages to the backup in this. I didn't feel like in this issue, Evanier had figured out the pacing yet because the plot really felt rushed at the main story. And, you know, it's funny. He, he says in a couple of uh, interviews that he really wasn't an expert on World War II. He had never written war comics and so forth, but that he was doing a good deal of research. And he ran into trouble sometimes with Ridwell, who was, I guess, um, the editor and so forth. And uh, Bridwell would call him on things, and then Evanier would say, well, I've got this source that says this, and Bridwell said, I've got this, and then they have to hash it out. And there are, as, and, and I think it does, it's, it's pretty good in terms of its historical perspective. And he always has the, well, this happened on Earth, one trap door to sneak out of. But this was the issue in which they're fighting in Switzerland, and Nazi soldiers are walking around in Switzerland. And I want to say, wait a minute, you know, he had the, he had the, the name of the, Swiss uh, city misspelled. It was Bern. He has a B E R N E. It's B E R N. And and I'm saying to myself, come on now, tighten it up here, get with it. And because uh, he, you know, in, in in some ways it was it was pretty well researched, and he was finding these little odd corners of the war to uh, spotlight. And uh, so it, when when those kinds of things stick out at you, you just say, oh, come on, get it right. <laughs> um, I, that, that kind of thing bugs me. Well, one thing that brings up is that even though the series only ran for 23 issues, mm. it had four different editors. Um, as we mentioned, Len Wein was the original editor, but he actually left the book after just the first issue, I think, maybe the first two, and was replaced by Marv Wolfman as editor. And then after just a few issues, he left the book, and er Ernie Colon took over, and eventually he left the book, and they just gave it to Mark Evanier to edit yeah. himself. So I'm, I have the idea in terms of tightening it up that he wasn't the editors weren't doing much editing. Probably not, and and he was just. And he, I'm I'm glad they turned it over to him. Matter of fact, I thought you know in some ways the quality picked up. But, you know, naturally he was doing it now, and he'd had experience doing it, so you have every right to expect that. But I I liked it when he, he took it over. I think it makes sense, especially because as we see with the backup stories that start in this issue. He starts bringing in a lot of sort of top name artists to do the backup stories. And it seems from from what I've read, he mentions this in the letter columns at different points. They're basically people that Evanier knows. It's not like Ernie yeah. Cohen is, is like calling people to ask them. It's Evanier and his his network of all of these guys. Right. Given that, it makes sense for him just to be the editor because he's kind of doing the editor's job anyway. Yeah. And yeah. he has resources that the editors may not have. Right. And, and connect the well and yeah, Spiegel himself, for instance. You know, I wondered and I didn't see any reference to this, but I wondered if the page uh, if it, let's say the twenty three page, the full page count was too much for Spiegel sometimes. Maybe he had other assignments and this was Evanier's way, because I know Evanier and Spiegel, I mean they worked together a lot and he loved Spiegel. And uh, I wonder if he said, Yeah, you know what, maybe and it was a perfect setup because Blackhawk comics had always had the detached service diary. So it was a nice tie to the past. And he said, you know what, why don't, why don't I spring you for six or seven pages, you know, uh, for a few months here and there. And then they could drop them in when they needed them. 
I don't know. I think I'm, you're probably right. There are two issues later on which are have no main story, and Spiegel right? is not in those. And at one point, Evanier mentioned that Spiegel was doing the art for an annual on another title. Uh-huh. So I think... He probably was doing a lot of work outside of Blackhawk that required this. Yep. Um, in this case, it's Dave Cockrum, who is a big Blackhawk fan. Right. So, at 2.55, we, it's almost like the, 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 those previous issues with Domino and the War and everything were just sort of set up because they were sort of one and done. But with 2.55, we start this uh, longer storyline that runs for... It's actually kind of hard in, in modern terms to think of like these defined arcs. Um, where a story will be these four issues. Blackhawk is a little different because he'll have a plot that might run over two or three issues and a subplot in those same stories that then leads into the next plot in a little bit of a Chris Claremont sort of way. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have one of those here, issues 255, 256, and 257. Blackhawk was given a, a medallion to wear. Yes. And uh, the Nazis then could... Um, be in touch with him, so to speak. It was almost like a GPS in 1942 or 1940. And it also uh, worked to increase his fears. Whoever wore it um, was subject to being paralyzed with fear. Right. Driven mad with fear. And and all your deepest, darkest uh, phobias would surface and you would uh, be be driven mad. Yeah, that's exactly right. So it's kind of funny where he accepts this medallion from a little girl and it turns out that she's a circus midget who's a Nazi agent. That was a nice little bit. And as you say, the medallion gets these radio signals that drive whoever's wearing it crazy. But in Blackhawk's case, he has all these like crippling nightmares. And this issue, there's something that bugged me here was, I sound like I really hate this thing. But but there were, you know, when you reread these uh, 30 odd years later, you're saying to yourself, really? But uh, I, I have no idea, by the way, where Blackhawk Island is, because they have access just in one fighter plane flight to every bit of Europe. And in this case, he goes as far as apparently the North African desert. It's the only desert that he could have been uh, marooned in. And uh, so, so I have no idea where um, Blackhawk Island is. Maybe it moves around. Yeah. And I, you know, sometimes he needs a, a plot device, but... This is my point. Sometimes he, he just, it's just there's a certain inconsistency that I wish he was. And, and, and maybe your point is, is uh, apt here, that he didn't have anybody really supervising things. Yeah, I noticed that too about the, the um, locations. There's an issue later on where Chuck is on Blackhawk Island. And he just gets this hunch uh, yeah. that something's wrong. And, and so he jumps in his plane and flies to Marrakesh. Uh, yes. And yeah. like uh, does this, has this adventure there and then flies back. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> I'm not up on, on what the flying range of a Grumman Skyrocket was. But as far as I know, it wasn't until maybe the uh, the Mustangs, the P-51 Mustangs, which were fitted with um, bigger gas tanks, that the fighter planes could fly uh, escort um, most of the way or all of the way with uh, the bombers going from England over to Germany. So, you know, so for them to, you know, just <laughs> pick up, remember, I think that's the issue where it's, We'll all go in our own direction, and we'll uh, we'll find out what's going on. And you know, as I said, they all wind up all over Europe. I think we're just supposed to not pay attention. It's yeah. like Indiana Jones strapping himself to the periscope, you know, and, and hoping that the submarine never never goes under the surface as he travels over the island, whatever it was. 
So from a plot perspective, basically what happens here is Blackhawk gets captured. The the Nazis try to drive him crazy using the medallion. It doesn't work. Meanwhile, Stan and the gang are trying to rescue him, and Stan's in charge, and he totally blows at being in charge. Yeah. And everyone, particularly Chuck, is just ragging on him the whole time. Chuck is just, like, mercilessly bagging on him. That drove me crazy, because I'm saying, well, why is he second in command? You know, right. he, it's just because he knew Blackhawk the longest or something. And and again, you know, on the one hand, this crowd is supposed to be Hitler's Hitler's deadly fearful of them. You know, he knows them all essentially all by name and you know, by their dossiers. And these are the finest, best trained outfit that the Allies have. These guys look, you know, it's, it's basically a food fight whenever they're uh, together. Yeah. And it's interesting that Stan, he's, he's not good at this, but he doesn't. He's not good at anything compared to yeah. the other. The other Blackhawks each have a specific thing. Like Olaf is the acrobat, and yeah. Henriksen is a sharpshooter, and uh, Andre is a spy, so he can speak all these different languages. And Stan has no skills. <laughs> I, and you know, it's funny that 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 in between Blackhawk series, the one that began in '76 or whatever it was, Stan was actually running the whole Cunningham Aircraft Company or whatever it was that was the cover for, for the Black Hawk Enterprises. He was the brains of the outfit. He was the public face of the outfit as well, if I recall correctly. So they really used to stand in that series uh, rather well. Here, like I said, I, I, I felt bad for the guy, but then again, he was also kind of a special snowflake at times, kind of bemoaning his, his inability to uh, step up to the plate. Well, Stan does get one, one uh, bit of play here because... When they go to try and rescue Blackhawk, he gets captured <laughs> and turned into a giant mutant. Mutant. Because <laughs> uh, Professor Merson, among his other abilities, is experimenting with yeah. genetics, and he's making these giant brainless mutants. Not on purpose. He's trying to. He's basically trying to make Captain America, and he's accidentally coming up with these mindless beasts. Yeah. So and not only. Person, a genetic expert, but he's also uh, a nuclear scientist and some sort of, you know, uh, aeronautical engineer as well, because he can build war wheels that are held up by dirigible. This guy is a polymath. He's the he's, he's the history. real deal. Yeah. So yeah, so Stan gets turned into a mutant, and in in the next issue, basically Blackhawk discovers that the guy in charge of this whole operation is his arch enemy, uh, von Stupp. I can't, I can't remember what his name is. But. Yeah. On tap. On tap, yeah. Um, and so Blackhawk's like, I'm going to kill that guy, and I'm going to kill that mutant that he's dragging around with him, because he doesn't yeah. know the mutant Stan. And so he ends up basically kind of like getting captured again. Um, mm-hmm. But Von Tepp makes the mistake of, he doesn't know what the medallion is, apparently, because he grabs the medallion as like a trophy yes. of his final triumph, and as soon as he grabs it, he's not half the man Blackhawk is, because he goes stark raving mad and basically yeah. drops dead. Yeah, I forget how he describes almost like his head explodes. Yeah. It was like and, the end the end of Raiders when the uh, Germans, you know, basically melt to death. He just had that same feeling and just he, he, he couldn't couldn't contain all these um, fears that he had and imploded. And then basically uh, Blackhawk shoots Stan. Right after he does that, the rest of the team shows up and they're like, Don't shoot Stan, he's a mutant. <laughs> uh, but, and by the way, hadn't hadn't bullets been bouncing off him for a while before that too? Yes, yes. I forget what it was that made these bullets. Maybe he got them right in the heart or something. But whatever it was, Stan, you know, takes a bullet. And yep. and that's pretty much where this this arc leaves off. Obviously, we're going to be picking up more with with uh, 
stand at death's door and all this stuff. Um, it's Blackhawk sitting vigil by his bedside. And Blackhawk sitting vigil. That's going to happen. take place for a couple more issues. Also in this issue, Merson gets away. Domino basically just grabs him and runs off. So he's still at large. So at any time you could get a, more mutants and more war wheels. And mm. also in this <laughs> issue, I think a sequence that I found hilarious, he had made a bunch of guys, agents that look exactly like Hitler. Yeah. And Couldn't we have saved that for another issue that, there was that too, I know. And well, they they come back several times later on. In no, what I mean is, it's almost like that was again, but um, too much plot going on in one. Story. A lot of plot. Um, yeah. What, like, like they're they're rushing in to rescue Blackhawk, and <laughs> Chop Chop's like, "Hey, I just saw five guys that look like Hitler." <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and then they wind up using these Hitlers as, as assassins because it's going to look good if, if Hitler takes down various uh, various people. I found the whole extra Hitler thing yeah. to be hilarious, but yes. just that one bit in particular where they're running around trying to do things and Chop Chop's is like, hey guys, <laughs> this is weird. I saw five guys that look like Hitler. And everyone's just like, whatever. They totally ignore him. And of course, this is playing on probably the whole notion that Hitler didn't die you know, in his bunker at the end of World War Two, and there were, and, or that they had, you know, they, they created duplicates of him, and that's what they, that's who supposedly died. Because you know, after World War Two, there were always these sightings of Hitler, like Elvis at, at you know, your local pancake house. But the, um, the other, th- this bugged me a little bit because for me, Hitler was, he, he became an increasingly comic figure in this whole series. He just, he didn't have any of the menace that he should have had that I think the Veneer wanted him to. But he kept pop, you know, he was used so often. He was in virtually every issue. And he's there, you know, you know, and he's always the fuming, pounding the table, Fuhrer, you know, Verdamta, you know, it was, it, it was a little right out of uh, Sergeant Fury for me, um, the way Hitler was portrayed. You know, just, yeah, there's a sequence later on, towards the end of the run, where one of his plans backfires. He, like, fails to capture Blackhawk. Yeah. And so he just turns around and orders his armies to invade Greece. I know, because, yeah. Because he's so pissed off and he needs so, to feel more manly. Yeah, and and what are we are we supposed to be sort of laughing or are we supposed to say, oh yeah, that's that's how these decisions are made. <laughs> I, I, again, you know, I couldn't quite, ca- I didn't catch the tone. I don't, I don't know exactly what Amir was going for there. So there's a couple other things in these issues that are worth noting. Uh, starting with issue 257, Howard Chaikin begins doing the covers. Previously, they were mostly by Dave Cockrum. Chaikin's covers for me are really good. Yeah, uh, 257's really good, but it's 259. We'll talk about this when we get to 259. It's just one of my favorite covers. I just love the cover for oh, 259. Yeah. I'm going to um, suck covers that are that are black anyway in the background. I think they, they really are striking. And, the, and the, uh, the coloring on that cover is really great. Yeah, the only I, problem with it is if you ever decide to get that issue autographed. Oh, yeah. There, there are a couple uh, you have to do it on the shoots, right? Yeah, that are, that are yellow. Yeah, well, because I, I, I have that issue autographed by Chaikin, oh, okay. and he did not sign on the parachute. He signed with a black marker on the black background, yeah. so you can't see, unless you know it's there. Why doesn't that surprise me? Um, so the the backup story for 257 um, <laughs> has art by John Severin. I just wanted to point that out, because this is another oh. case where Evanier is getting some real A-listers to do these backup stories. And, and of course, Severin's always a treat. Yeah. So, but the other thing that happens in this arc is it starts with issue 255, where there's a letter in the letter column uh, about Chop Chop. Mm -hmm. And they're basically saying, you know, Chop Chop at this point 
it's not that he's like a full-on 40-style racial caricature, but he doesn't have a uniform like the rest of the Blackhawks. He is called Chop Chop. We don't even know what his real name is. Right. And so they're basically just saying, like, what are you doing with this guy? And in the next issue, Evanier follows up again with this, saying he's been thinking about it, and he's he wants to know what all the fans think about whether or not Chop Chop should get a uniform like the rest of the Blackhawks or whether he should u- wear his like classic smock. Yeah. Were you taken a little aback by that? I thought to myself, really? I- I've been wondering why he's dressed like this all along at this point. I mean, I know it was only 1982. That sounds like, you know, a million years ago. But by then, had he come out with, uh, I mean, it-, it seems to me in the, um, in the last G- in those last two Giordano issues, uh, Chop Chop, even though he had that dopey name, he was wearing um, a flight suit. You know, the leather. He wasn't. He wasn't wearing the uh, whatever that peasant costume or whatever that they, they used to put him in. And I, and I wish Evanier would have just done it because remember he talks about uh, there was an editorial. I'd love to get a hold of that in some Richmond, Virginia newspaper, oh, in, yeah. which, in which a guy criticized him for not bringing him all the way back to that hideous caricature with the pigtail and the gigantic buck teeth and everything. So I don't know whether it was a wake-up call for Evanier, and he thought he was taking a, a, a stride forward, and then realized what the hell, you know, uh, maybe maybe he should be a full-fledged, so to speak, uh, member of the team. Yeah, we're gonna we'll talk a little bit more about that um, editorial. It, it's uh, comes up in issue two sixty-three where Evanier does a whole instead of a letter column there's a whole page of him just talking yeah. about this so that's when the chop chop stuff really starts taking center stage but it, it begins here and i think you're right it's interesting you mentioned this being 82 um and even you know it seems like a long time ago but attitudes weren't that they they weren't what they are now but they also weren't what they were in the 40s there's a, a guy later on writes a letter into them basically saying um, talking about the the idea of Chop Chop getting uniform, and he said it's interesting that he noticed as soon as this revival started that Chop Chop didn't have a uniform. Yeah. But he never noticed it in the previous versions because this is a guy who had read the '70s and the '60s yeah. edition, and so he talks in the letter about how it's interesting how societal attitudes have changed. Where he noticed that now, but he didn't notice it in the '60s. Mm-hmm. But it, it is a little odd to me that Evanier asked what the fans thought. Part of me feels like that might have been disingenuous, like he was planning on doing this stuff anyway, and he was just like trying to get the fans involved in a decision Maybe. that he was already going to do. Right. But right. I don't know. Like, I'm just spitballing because it seems like such an obvious thing in retrospect. Yeah. And, and, and it came so, in other words, if, 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 if it were going to happen, it would have been something that would have been better if it had happened a little earlier, I thought. No. I agree. Although... Because- it, it just leaves it. It left it so open um, and undetermined whether was was Evanier happy with this. There were very few hints before that that uh, Chop Chop was was feeling any angst or, or resentment or anything like that. It, it suddenly was dropped in. Yeah, it's going to be a little while even after he starts yes. talking about the letter column before Chop Chop actually starts expressing the stuff in the stories. So two fifty eight is a Andre spotlight story and. For me, this is one of the weakest issues in the run. It just didn't work for me. You're talking about this is the one with the Iwo Jima cover. Yes, right? this is the one yes. where... The A-bomb. The A-bomb. Yes. So in this story, the Nazis are working on an, an atomic bomb, and they successfully develop it, and then they drop it on Blackhawk Island because of all the places in the world that's a priority to blow up with an atomic bomb. It's not like London. It's Blackhawk Island. Right. Why not? Yeah, I thought that... 
plot wise, th- there are parts of it that I appreciated. I appreciated just how like batshit crazy it was to have the Germans successfully develop an atomic bomb in 1940 and then drop it on Blackhawk Island for no reason. Yeah. Um, so and, I appreciated that. And they were using that that gigantic um, tunnel machine right yes i loved the 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 mole machine the mole machine where they're like they don't even use it for anything it's yeah it's a a huge thing that can drill at incredible speeds through the earth and the only thing they use it for is basically to drive back and forth between their houses i know i know it's just again this is what i mean it's it's like evanier has lots of ideas but maybe he derived it from kirby you know he was a kirby assistant for years if, you know, Recurve, you would just, you know, one issue, you'd say, oh, my God, there's like 25 concepts there. But he could get away with it, <laughs> I guess. Well, I found that to be funny. It didn't make any sense. I mean, none of the yeah. plot really made any sense in this issue. Well, um, you know what was going on, too? You know, when I was rereading this, I'm looking, I'm going, wait a minute. Because, and, and when I looked at the dates, I realized, first of all, that was the second cold, the, the second uh, coming of the Cold War, so to speak. When I was, a, when I was very young in school and, and we had air raid sirens going off in town and they taught us to duck and cover under our desks and all this sort of thing because of potential atomic attack. People were building fallout shelters in their backyards. And then with Reagan and um, you know, with the Reagan presidency, suddenly the, the nuclear clock was set to you know 10 seconds to midnight and there was uh, a, a great worry, a great anxiety about it. And, and one of the big touchstones of that time was this TV movie the, the day after. And about the impend- what would happen to Kansas if if it were attacked and an atomic bomb went off, and it was it was so much a part of the uh, zeitgeist that you know in schools and I was a teacher, they were sending out packets to us. Here's how to teach this. Here's how to talk about it. Here's how to get kids ready for it if they watch it. And this was in the days when you didn't have to watch TV or there was no, there no VCRs really and so forth. And, and so it was, it was, um, and that was on the horizon. That movie hadn't come out yet, but the whole notion that we were close to a possible atomic war at any time was really palpable. And, you know, Evanier's, you know, his heart was in the right place perhaps, but he has that horrible poem opening and closing the story. And, uh, and then, you know, we have the atomic bomb going off in this thing. And, and of course, all the Blackhawks staring right at it. So who knows what the <laughs> what the result would be for them ten years later? Um, but I think that's probably what what was in the air uh, to coin upon uh, at that time, and why he chose to do an A bomb story. And you know what? People were beefing about it in the letters pages a couple of months later too. They felt he was pushing an agenda. Oh, it's, you know what? I I don't think I actually read those letters because I I did not make the connection with Day After Tomorrow. I remember I didn't I didn't watch that movie when it came out, but I was ten when that yeah. was on, and it scared might, might the shit out of me. Yeah. Oh, and and that's what they said. Yeah, kids would be would be terribly frightened and, and so forth. Oh, yeah. we were. Oh yeah. Well, you remember, and and being a little kid, it, it made it even more intense, perhaps. So, besides all the atomic bomb stuff, which didn't really work for me, even though I found the drill funny, mm. what worked for me even less was the Andre character bits. In this issue, we, we have Blackhawk, and he's sitting vigil at Stan's bed, and very sort of randomly, but helpfully for Mark Evanier's plot, the Allies have sent this nurse to watch right. over Stanislaw. Right. And throughout the, throughout the first several issues... People, and mainly Blackhawk and Chuck, of course, who just bitches about everything, um, have been complaining about how reckless Andre is. And Andre treats everything like a game. Well, in this issue, he's 
he makes time with this nurse and then the they drop an A-bomb on the island and in the chaos as everyone's running around doing stuff they totally forget the nurse is even there and they just leave her on the island to get blown up and then at the end Andre's like oh my god the nurse got blown up and they're like well maybe Andre's gonna take things more seriously now and I was like it's a little too pat uh, and by a little too pat I mean like way too pat yeah it also was like, how in God's name did they forget the nurse was there? And, and in the panel where uh, first it, it's Chuck and Andre talking to each other over the stretcher bearing uh, Stanislaus out. And, and you check the visitor barrack. You check the visitor barrack. Oh, I get it. There's, there's going to be some confusion there. By the way, the nurse never even gets a name. I mean, I was hoping. I assume, should... I assume it's Pam Hawley. Yeah. <laughs> They're the only ones who die in wars. You're right. <laughs> and... Uh, that ending was so mawkish. It was just, it was just really a bad thing. And and you know what? Here's the thing. <laughs> the thing I noticed too. Um, Andre is okay. So he's apparently a little bit upset because he's he's sort of praying or something at the end. But Chop Chop of all people looks at him and says, "Hey, we're only human. We can't save everyone." It's, he, he might as well be saying, "Hey, shit happens." <laughs> yes. You know. Yeah, she's just a freaking nurse. We didn't know her name. And, uh, and, oh, well, we can't, we can't do it for everybody. And, and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, okay, I can see somebody saying that perhaps, but not Chop Chop, that character. He's evinced no, there's, there's been no evidence that he would, he would speak like that. And then Blackhawk saying, well, I think the war is starting to make sense to him now or something like that. He's taking it seriously now. I, I just, oh, my God, I want to just stick a finger down my throat. And it's yeah. just, and you know what the thing is? I, I'm, I'm being really captious, perhaps, because I read the Evanier blog pretty regularly, a few times a week, and he comments on this and that, and I, and I enjoy it. And he writes well. And I'm thinking to myself, well, you know, he was he was just a guy, and he was about 30 or so when he was doing this, so I, I should cut him a little bit of a break. But it's just, I, I mean, how does that get past somebody? I don't know. Even old Dan Spiegel maybe should have said, hey, come on, Mark. That's <laughs> a little too maudlin and and, and kind of disingenuous. Yeah, but, it just not only that, but it it also just I didn't believe it on a character level. Exactly. Yeah. Not 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 a no way did I did I believe that. And then unless I missed something because I I, I went back to it and I said I'm going to check it. I don't think it's ever mentioned again. Like Andre is not haunted by ghosts the way Stanislaus and Blackhawk are frequently haunted by ghosts and their memories and so forth and their dreams and all this sort of thing. Not Andre. Okay, moving on from the A-bomb death of this nurse that I had a quick shack up. Yeah, exactly. Like, if if this had actually changed Andre, then that ah. might be different, but it didn't. Right. Like, the, the whole right. point of this is, like, Andre's taking things more seriously now. Well, oh, that's he's, all it's about. He's maybe not as reckless. Like, Evanier yeah. doesn't write him taking ridiculous chances after this. Yeah. But his demeanor is exactly the same. Absolutely, yeah. He, it doesn't seem to have really affected him other than, you know, him saying to himself, oh, well, someone could drop an A-bomb on me. I should probably be more careful. Yeah. yeah and yeah. and if they do, the other Blackhawks might not think to rescue me. <laughs> they might forget <laughs> I'm there. <laughs> you know, uh, the other thing that struck me, you were that mole machine that made you laugh. The thing that really stuck out to me in this issue was when they're in that tunnel and they're saying, oh, we'll never catch up to that machine. And Blackhawk says, Chuck, how long would it take you to uh, disassemble one of our planes, bring it back down here in this tunnel under the earth, and reassemble it in a modified version so that we can travel under the earth? I just, I, 
I, I, I stopped when I'm reading it. And I'm going, okay, well, this is a comic book. And I know these kinds of things happen in, in, in comic books. But this is, you know, you're trying to give this World War II semi-realistic vibe to this thing. Holy crow. And then they, I forget how they lower it down, like on sticks and ropes and so forth. They're lowering down, you know, hundreds of pounds worth of engine and wing. And it's just, un and then, of course, it rolls perfectly. And luckily, the tunnel is wide enough for the wingspan. Yeah. I'm pretty sure when Blackhawk asks Chuck that question, Chuck's like, oh, yeah. an hour. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he does. Wait a minute. I think I have it here. Like, yeah. He says something like that to him. You're exactly right. But uh, it was, and you know, it's so funny, too, because it was it was starting to become chic to make fun of, of uh, whatever you want to call them, Silver Age comics, you know, Cave Carson and all this stuff. That could, poss that could never possibly happen. And here, you know. The same guys who age group that was criticizing it are uh, are you know pulling the same stunt up. He says, uh, "Give me tools in one hour, and you've got it." <laughs> you know, I gotta say, because it was so goofy, that was my favorite part of the story. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It isn't. That I dislike it. I'm just looking at it, going, "Okay." You know, I don't know if you ever you ever go to a play and you see one character acting like a complete idiot and he's acting like it's a farce or a spoof and then you have everybody else being serious and you want to turn and go, what play are you in? And and that's almost like, like okay, what movie are we making here? But I think, you know, you mentioned it earlier too and I think he's trying to capture a little of that sort of serial adventure style. Um, the problem with that is you can't overload the, the real human emotion in that kind of a story. It just can't bear the weight. And so he's doing all these things at once. Well, it's interesting you mentioned like the realism versus the crazy stuff because there's actually a number of letters complaining about the next issue on this exact point. Issue 259. Oh, I, yeah. Which has a great cover, as we've already talked about, by Howard Chaikin. The story inside is basically uh, about a guy who is this uh, nebbishy little nobody who, back in America, who is inspired by the newsreels about Blackhawk to go to Europe and try and join the team. And... He gets to Blackhawk Island just as it's hit by a nuke. And the radiation gives him superpowers where he turns completely invisible. Yes. And he uses his invisibility to basically... The actual team gets sent on this wild goose chase while the Nazi agents, I think they were going to kill Churchill. Mm-hmm. So this invisible guy uses his powers to save Churchill and only nobody, he does it wearing an extra Blackhawk uniform. So they're like the unknown Blackhawk. Like yeah. who, who was this man or right. how did this happen? And then he disappears because he's invisible and it, he goes back to America and sort of his life has changed because now he's realized his inner heroism. Yes. He could be just like the Blackhawk. And the letters after this, so I'm going to say right up front, I really liked this story a lot. I did. I did too. I thought it was one of the best issues they had of this whole series. Yeah, me too. I wrote in my notes here, great issue. It's, yep. it's one of the best. And I was surprised, and Evan Year said he was also surprised at this. In the letters, hmm. there's a lot of people complaining about the Invisible Man <laughs> not fitting in with the tone of the book because everything else is so realistic. When I read those letters, I was like, what? Oh, <laughs> like, you know what I thought? And I don't know if Evanier ever mentioned it. I didn't see any reference to it, but this was a Will Eisner story. This was, um, you know, he used to write these spirit stories in which the spirit only made almost a cameo appearance. 
and like the Blackhawks didn't play his major role in this. It was all about this guy Winslow Shirk. He would just do these character studies. There was one about um, I wish I could. I, I just thought of it, but it was a guy with a similar kind of a funny name, and he finds out he can fly, and he just flies. He has his arms stretched out, and he's flying over the city, and it gives Eisner an excuse to tell some whimsical little you know fable, parable, whatever you want to call it. And he did this quite often. And uh, I think this was Evanier not stealing, uh, truly paying homage to, to Eisner, because even the way the narration is written reminds you of one of those Eisner spirit stories. It, it so reminds me of that kind of uh, approach that Eisner used to take. Yeah, I, I loved it. There are a couple other interesting things that happened in this issue, one of them which we've touched on earlier, we can circle back to now, which is Blackhawk is sitting vigil over Stan, and uh. the other members of the team are like, you know, Stan, he resents Blackhawk, and, and they're, they're basically tell Blackhawk that Blackhawk is being an a-hole. Yeah. And so Blackhawk has a heart-to-heart where he tells Stan that like he's tortured by fears of being a bad leader and getting all his men killed, and he's sorry he's put on this sort of like air of invincibility that make, is making Stan feel uh, second-rate. And they sort of patch things up, and uh, our invisible man sort of watches, sees the whole thing happen, and sheds an invisible tear over it. Mm. And um, that was a nice sequence of panels there with the glasses. I, I loved the art in this issue. There's, the, and there was one great part where he's invisible, but you can see he's there because of these glasses. And mm-hmm. Evanier had this word balloon. He's like, the other Blackhawks are so distracted they don't even notice the floating glasses. <laughs> And of course, and the and the statue they have of the unknown Black Hawk makes him look like you know he's he's a superhero in a uniform with a machine gun and everything. It's just it, it was just really well done, I thought. Uh, and then we also get a backup story that gives us Chop Chop's origin. And in the backup story, now there's certain aspects of this backup story that were a little weird because it involved like a, a secret uh, Chinese outpost in the middle of the Swiss Alps and also ninjas. But but those things aside. We get his origin story where we learn that he was fighting the Japanese in China and he ended, his real name is Wu Cheng. And he ended up, um, when his sort of like resistance group sort of got disbanded, he ended up coming to Europe and joining the Blackhawks. And in this issue, he's trying to convince his former mentor to go back to China because they need leaders. And the China, the leader's like, well, if they need leaders there, why are you here? Get off my back, dude. Mm-hmm. Um, and Chop Chop really takes that to heart, and this is going to start. This is where the stuff happening in the letter column about Chop Chop starts coming out in the character, beginning with this backup story. Right, he finally does that. But we'll get to that and much more next episode, beginning with an epic three-part story that can only be called "Too Many Hitlers." See you then. That wraps up this episode of the Classic Comics Forum podcast. I want to thank, once again, my guest, Prince Hal, for joining me. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Next episode, we'll conclude our three-part discussion of Blackhawk, covering issues 260 to 273. As I mentioned, we'll be beginning with the Too Many Hitler storyline, and we'll cover all the stuff going on with Chop Chop, and then get into a storyline that is very important to me personally, as a comic collector and fan about the replacement Blackhawk. So once again, 
Thanks very much for listening, and as always, you can visit us at ClassicComics.org to join in the conversation.